0: Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate talks to his friends about Jesus. All right, today we're going to be talking about Doctrine and Covenants section one thirty-five and the assassination of Joseph Smith. In talking about this, uh, former BYU dean of religion Robert Millet said, "The life of Joseph Smith was in some degree patterned after that of the Master Jesus Christ. That pattern holds true even when extended to its tragic conclusion." Like his master, Joseph Smith also shed his blood in order to that the final testament, the reestablishment of the new covenant, might be in full effect, end quote. The idea, the reason I'm sharing this with you right off the bat is that he's saying that, that Joseph Smith's death parallels in some degree that of jo- Jesus Christ. Now, don't mistake this at all. We do not worship Joseph. We are saved through Jesus Christ and his power alone. But he's saying that there are are parallels here, there are symbols here. So I want you to be thinking, I'm not going to necessarily come straight out and answer these questions, but I want you to be thinking as I tell you the story today, if Joseph parallels Jesus in this story, who parallels Judas? Who are the chief priests? Who are the Jews? Who is the Pontius Pilate? See if you come up with your own answers here as we go through it. Now... There are four main factors that are going to lead to the murder of Joseph Smith. The first one, like we talked about recently, is the introduction of plural marriage. That's going to lead to number two, the apostasy of key individuals. We're also going to look at Joseph's candidacy for the US presidency and the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor. But let's first look at these first two. The introduction of plural marriage and the apostasy of key individuals that it brings about. Now, you'll remember you had John C. Bennett preaching his spiritual wifery and seducing women. Um, And so while John C. Bennett is accusing Joseph Smith of all these crazy things like murdering Lilburn Boggs and all of that, much of what John has written is embellished or flatly untrue. But his claim that Joseph had married multiple women was correct. However, there's some leaders of the church, including Hiram Smith and William Law, that are unaware of the fact that Joseph has married uh, multiple women and are therefore unwittingly condemning these saints who are practicing plural marriage in obedience and not in any way shady. So Hiram and William Law are both members of the First Presidency, and they don't know about plural marriage because they had so strongly rejected the idea when Joseph broaches the topic. Hiram, as I've told you before, eventually is convinced by Brigham Young. But William, dude, William won't have anything to do about it, with it. Once during a council meeting, Joseph barely broached the topic of plural marriage. And William replies, if an angel from heaven was to reveal to me that a man should have more than one wife, I would kill him. Ooh, that's a strong take there, Will. You want to know why it's such a small take? Strong take, small take, strong take. <laughs> Want to know why it's such a strong take? Well, William Law is hiding the fact right now that he's committing adultery and having an affair. And it's eating him up inside. Not knowing about this, Hiram gives uh, William a copy of the revelation on marriage. He tells him to take it home and read it and then be careful with it and bring it back. William studies the revelation, shows it to his wife Jane. He doubts the authenticity, but she is sure that it is real. When William takes the revelation to Joseph, Joseph confirms that it's genuine. And William begs him to renounce uh, this uh, teaching of plural marriage. He says, dude, if you abandon this doctrine, Mormonism, these are his words, would in 50 or 100 years dominate the Christian world. Uh, Joseph goes on talking about this. Um, He said, Mr. Law pleaded with tears streaming in his eyes. Um, For him to to disregard this doctrine. But Joseph just said that he could not disobey God. He had to obey and he would be condemned if he disobeyed. At some point, William finally becomes so sick because of his adultery and he confesses his sin to Hiram. Apparently, Hiram's the go-to guy to confess to. Um, And he just is like, I don't feel worthy to live or die. But... He wants to be sealed for eternity to Jane. He believes in the revelation for marriage and the, this idea of eternities. So Joseph takes the question to the Lord, and the Lord revealed that William could not receive the ordinance because he had just got, got done confessing that he committed adultery. There's, this has got to take some time to change. Well, instead of humbling himself, changing, and growing, He's now mad against Joseph for not letting this happen. And he decides to fight against him. He stops meeting with the endowed saints in late December. And Jane, his wife, is like, well, if we're not going to be members of the church, why are we here in this malarial swamp? Let's just move. But William wants to crush Joseph. He begins secretly plotting with others and opposing him. He's excommunicated from the First Presidency. He says he's glad to be free from his association and actively works to to bring about Joseph's demise. He does so by offering a guy named Joseph Jackson $500 to kill Joseph Smith. On another occasion... He puts pistols in his own pocket and goes to Joseph's house determined to, quote, blow his infernal brains out, but I could not get the opportunity to shoot him. <laughs> but I am determined I will shoot him the first opportunity and you will see blood and thunder and devastation in this place, end quote. Um, another point, he gets drunk and he tries to shoot Joseph. It's a crazy story. He comes home drunk. And he tells a young man named Charles Stoddard, who works for him, uh, to go get his guns. Now, Charles Stoddard is a good, upstanding boy. He he sees that Mr. La has been drinking, kind of freaks him out a little bit. And he goes and gets the guns, and he starts um, cleaning them. The whole time Charles cleaning them... Um, William Law is standing over him talking about how he's going to use these guns to shoot Joseph Smith. He's going to kill him, whatever, right? And so then he sends Charles over to bring the prophet to his house. So Charles runs over as fast as he could to Joseph's house, but he's like, dude, William Law wants you to come see him, but don't go. He's drunk and he's threatening to shoot you. Don't go. But Joseph's like, I can go over there and see him. And then so they walk the few blocks from the mansion house to the law residence. Like, the prophet tells Charles that no harm's gonna come to him. But Charles is losing his mind. He's like, I am going to be the person that cleaned the gun that is used to kill the prophet. And he's just sick. He's just gonna want to throw up. But trying to calm him down. Joseph says to Charles, and again, Charles is just a young man at this point. He says, Mr. Law may someday kill me, Charles, but it won't be today. So they come to the house. Mr. Law, William Law, comes staggering out of the house, shouting that he intends to shoot Joseph dead. Joseph just kindly, calmly says, you sent for me, Mr. Law? And William replies that he's going to do the whole world a favor by disposing of the prophet with one shot. Well, Joseph's response is to unbutton his shirt, bare his chest, and say, I'm ready right now, Mr. Law. So Charles says at this point, like he he nearly is just fainting with fear and sickness, like that he cleaned the gun that's going to kill Joseph. He wants to throw up, just paralyzed. So Law uh, paces back and forth, finally gets up the courage, turns, aims the pistol, and pulls the trigger. But there's complete silence. Dude, Law starts cursing, turns on Charles, accusing him of fixing the gun so it would not go off, threatening to kill Charles. And the the prophet is like, "Dude, come on, man." He's like, "There's nothing wrong with the gun." He's like, "Charles, go get a go get a can and put it on the fence post." And he's like, "Maybe you need a practice shot." So he tells uh, William to take a practice shot. Charles puts the can on the post. William paces back and forth, takes aim, and fires. And his shot streaks through the exact center of the can. Dude, William is stunned. Joseph's slow motion buttons up his shirt, gives Charles uh, a meaningful look. And he says, well, William, if you're finished with me now, I have other things that need to be done. And he takes off. Crazy. So this just keeps going, right? In the spring of 1844, you get another church member named Emer Harris. He tells Joseph that conspirators, including William Law, have invited him and his 19-year-old son, Denison, to start uh, um, attending their meetings. Um, Joseph told Emer, he's like, don't attend those meetings. Don't pay any attention to them. But he said, dude, if if your boy Denison is willing to go, it would help us learn what they're, they're trying to do. So later, Joseph meets with Denison and one of his friends named Robert Scott to prepare them for their assignment. Uh, he cautions them to say as little as possible so that they wouldn't offend anybody who was being hot-headed at the meeting. So, uh, Denison Harris and Robert Scott then attend William Law's secret meeting and they start reporting to Joseph what they learn. Um... So so by this point, William is completely against uh, Joseph Smith resenting his teachings on plural marriage because he's committing adultery and feels guilty, meaning William Law is guilty, and um, that that he's offended about the nature of God and other things like that. So uh, Joseph obeying God, William Law disobeying God in open rebellion. Anyways, having these meetings. So... As they, they go to these meetings, um, they, um, they, they start, they, they're strictly reserved in their words. And um, they, they make no promises to conspire against Joseph or the community or anything like that. So the following Sunday, when, after they go to the, the first couple of meetings, they go to the meeting place and the guys there have muskets and bayonets. They listen to the debate going on about um, how the the conspirators are planning that Joseph has to die, but nobody can settle on a plan. Before the meeting closes, Francis Higbee administers an oath of solidarity to each conspirator. One by one, the men and women in the room raised a Bible in their right hand and took an oath um, that they would be loyal to the other conspirators. But when Dennison and Robert's turn come, they refuse to step forward and take the oath. And the conspirators are like, Have you not heard the strong testimony of all present against Joseph Smith? Um, they're like, it is our solemn duty to accomplish his destruction and to rescue the people from peril. And Dennison and Robert are like, We came to your meetings because we thought you were our friends. We did not think there was any harm to it. So the leaders take the have the guards seize Dennison and Robert. They march them down to the cellar. Once there, the young men were given one more chance to take the oath. If you are still determined to refuse, we will have to shed your blood, they say. The, the young men are like, okay, we're going to die then. And then somebody, somebody in the cellar says, hold on, let's talk this matter over. So the, the conspirators are all arguing about this, Francis Higby, William Law, all of it. One person hears, uh, one of the young men over hear them say, it's too dangerous to kill them. The boy's parents... Uh, they, they might come looking for him. It, it's too dangerous. And so instead, they take him out of the cellar, and they take Denison and Robert down by the river. And the, the guards say, if you ever open your mouths, we will kill you by day or night, wherever we find you. So the young men uh, just run out of there. They go to the prophet. They tell him everything that happens. And, um, and Joseph says, brethren, you do not know what this will terminate in um and, and somebody said, asks joseph there do you think they're going to kill you are you going to be slain and joseph says uh he assures the young men that william law and the other conspirators are wrong about him he says i'm no false prophet i have no dark revelations um but he doesn't answer the question on whether or not they're going to kill him dude william law man joseph says about him he says we have a judas in our midst He says, My life is in more danger from some little doughhead of a fool in this city, meaning William Law, than from all my murderous enemies abroad. I am exposed to far greater danger from traitors among ourselves than from enemies without. So, four factors leading to the assassination. Number one, the introduction of plural marriage and the rebellion and apostasy of key individuals, Francis Higbee, but particularly William Law and others. Number three is Joseph's candidacy for presidency. So, basically, they are looking for help in getting their land that was unlawfully seized from them in Missouri back. They've tried to, um, to get it back th- uh, by going to the people of Missouri. You can imagine how that goes. They've gone to Washington, D.C. They talked to Martin Van Buren. They talked to congressmen and senators and all of this. And it just doesn't work at all. Well, it's a presidential, presidential election year um, coming up. And there are five candidates for president at the time. And Joseph writes to all five asking for help, his help and support, if they would win pre- um, the presidency in helping them get uh, their recoup their losses in uh, Missouri. So of the five candidates, three of them wrote back. Uh, two of them didn't write back. Of the three that wrote back, two of them argued that redress was a, a matter for the state and not for the president, and the third was sympathetic but noncommittal. Joseph's deeply frustrated for all of this and decides to run for president of the United States himself. He, he knows that it's a long shot, but it, he, it would at least give him a chance to publish the grievances that have been done for him. So on January 29, 1844, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles formally nominate Joseph as a candidate for president. And Joseph says, I would not have suffered my name to have been used by my friends on any wise as President of the United States or candidate for that office if I and my friends could have had the privilege of enjoying our religious and civil rights as American citizens, even those rights which the Constitution guarantees unto all her citizens alike. But this is a people we have been denied from the beginning. Persecution has rolled upon our heads from time to time from portions of the United States like pills of thunder because of our religion. And no portion of the government as yet has stepped forward to our relief. And in view of these things, I feel it to be my right and privilege to obtain what influence and power I can lawfully in the United States for the protection of the injured innocents. Now, honestly, I really, you're, you're going to think I'm biased, but I really like Joseph's political platform. Here's some of the key uh, aspects of his platform. Number one, he wants to give the U.S. president full power to send out in the army to suppress mobs without requiring the governor of the state to make the demand. This is important to him as a Latter-day Saint, but also you remember there's a lot of vigilante justice and mobs and lynching going on here. Number two, this is one of my favorite parts, he wants to eliminate slavery from the United States. He wants to purchase all slaves from their master through the sale of public lands, you know, like the big old Louisiana purchase that they're still divvying up. So sell those public lands to farmers, use the profit to, to purchase uh, freedom. He'd also... Um, increase the revenue by uh, reducing the salary of members of congress from $8 a day to $2 a day and use the difference to purchase freedom of uh, of slaves he wants to extensively reform prison turning them into places of learning not just punishment he wants to form a national bank to prevent some of the collapses and difficulties that have experienced recently He's in favor of annexing Oregon and Texas, and he also wants to extend the United States from east to west, but only if the Native Americans give their consent. Now, he's not ignorant. He, 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 he really wants to use influence and power to bring about the coming of this Jesus Christ and prepare the world for his coming. But he, if his campaign were to fail... He's ready to move outside of the United States, man. The United States over and over has done nothing to um, help the Latter-day Saints. So he forms a committee, and basically it's the the political committee. It's the Council of the Kingdom of God or the Council of Fifty. And it's their job to help on the presidential campaign. And it's their job to start looking for places where the Saints could move if things go south again. And so they start looking for places like California, Oregon, Texas, uh, even the Mountain West, all of these places uh, which are outside of the borders of the United States by then. So um, by 1844, there's seven candidates for the president of the United States, Martin Van Buren, Henry K. Clay, John Calhoun, Lewis Cass, Richard Johnson, Joseph Smith, and James K. Polk, who is eventually going to win. Now, as Joseph begins to preach, he's got this superior um, missionary force and the apostles and these missionaries are dispatched to basically every congressional district. They know how to set up town meetings. They know how to speak. They know how to overcome concerns and they're doing a lot. And as you can see, his platform's really good. Um, When there's a big meeting with delegates from every state in the union except for three, and they talk about how Joseph's views on government are circulating like wildfire. One individual says at the, this um, big meeting, this delegation, it says that if Joseph does not get into the presidential chair this election, he would be sure to get in there the next time. And so Thomas Ford and of the governor of Illinois and others uh, seem to say, hey, if you find some way to get rid of him, nobody's going to bring you to justice for it when um when thomas ford has joseph here in carthage and we'll talk about it later he again shows his betrayal he says um he heard a dan jones here's a militia officer alfred randall warn governor ford he says the troops will see joseph dead before the day's end governor ford's response is if you know any such thing keep it to yourself so his growing political power is forming a lot of enemies against him, um, jealousy and other things cause for wanting his death. But the straw that breaks the camel's back is the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor. The Nauvoo Expositor is published um, once and only once on June 7, 1844. And they are a who's who list of former friends and apostles who are trying to bring about the destruction of Joseph Smith. It's William Law and his brother Wilson Law Charles Ivins, Francis Francis Higbee, Chauncey Higbee, Robert Foster, Charles Foster. The guys trying to kill Joseph, having secret meetings and combinations against Joseph, all of that. Now in the Nauvoo Expositor it says this. It says, quote, We are earnestly seeking to explode the vicious principles of Joseph Smith, which we verily know are not accordant and consonant with the principles of Jesus Christ and the apostles. So, The newspaper has two-point criticism. Number one is religious criticism, and number two is political criticism. The number one accusation is that Joseph has strayed from the restored gospel by introducing the endowment, by practicing plural marriage, and teaching new doctrine about exaltation and the nature of God. Number two, they have real political concerns. They warn in the newspaper that Joseph's political power is rising. feel like he blurs the roles of church and state and they say like they denounce his candidacy for presidency so quote let us arise in the majesty of our strength and sweep the influence of tyrants and miscreants from the face of the land end quote so the day after the newspaper appears joseph convenes the nauvoo city council like they are legit worried about this um one individual saying it is not safe that such a thing should exist on account of the mob spirit which they tend to produce and quote so they, they've experienced this before and not just once they experienced it in jackson they experienced it in far west they experienced it to a certain degree in kirtland like this is not their first rodeo and they feel like this is just the beginning turning the tide against them and they will have people with guns attacking them another hans mill and so they are really worried Joseph proposes that the newspaper be declared a public nuisance and action be taken to stop its publication. Now, John Taylor says, hey, we got a constitutional right to protect ourselves against libel, against the lies that are being printed in the newspaper. So destroying the expositor and its press, getting rid of them would be controversial, but they did believe that there is a legal precedent to do it. Just to make sure everybody was clear, Joseph reads from the Illinois State Constitution about freedom of press so that they all understood the law. Then they get law books and they go over the legal justification for destroying a nuisance that is disturbing the peace to a community. So after much discussion, the city council votes to destroy the press and then the city marshal is sent to carry out the measure. That evening, the Nauvoo marshal arrives at the expositor office. They break into the shop with a sledgehammer, drag the printing press into the street, smash it to pieces, dump out the drawers of type, and set fire to the, the rubble. Any copies of the newspaper they could find were also added to the blaze. Now, the city council was acting in what they thought was the legal precedent here. But they underestimated how angry people would be at that. William Law fled the city Um, threatening to destroy the temple and set fire to Joseph's house and tear down the church's printing office. Francis Higby uh, enters charges against Joseph and the other members of the city council for inciting a riot when the press was destroyed. There's a nearby newspaper called the Warsaw Signal. It is very much an anti-Mormon newspaper. It's run by a guy named Thomas Sharp. He is not particularly religious, but he has been afraid of the Latter-day Saints for a while, viewing them as, quote, a dangerous un-American political movement aimed at the domination of a vast empire. So when he hears about the um, destruction of the press, he he just prints in his next paper, quote, war and extermination is inevitable. Citizens, arise one and all. Can you stand by and suffer such infernal devils to rob men of their property and rights without avenging them? We have not time for comment. Every man will make his own. Let it be made with powder and ball. End quote. So, seeing that this is spiraling out of control, Joseph takes several actions to kind of try and settle things down. Number one, He writes a letter to Governor Ford and just explains their action. He owns it. He's like, this is legal precedent. This is why we made the decisions we did. And he says, please help us against these mob attacks. Then Joseph admonishes the saints to stay calm and to prepare to defend the city. And then he musters the Nauvoo Legion, which they have a legal right to do in their city charter. And he puts the city under martial law um, to protect against mobs. Now, after hearing about Joseph's decision to destroy the press, Governor Ford understood that they thought they were acting in good faith. He just disagreed with them. Um, He said, basically, here's the problem. The legal destruction of the newspaper is what is uncommon. Most of the time this happens, and it happened to us in Jackson County, you just let the people paint their faces black and do it as an illegal mob. Like, that's how people get things done. The fact that they tried to do it legally becomes a big problem. Governor Ford replies, he says, Your conduct in the destruction of the press was a very gross outrage upon the laws and liberty of the people. It may have been full of libels, but this did not authorize you to destroy it. Again, legally speaking... There's debate for that, but Governor Ford feels otherwise. He says, I am anxious to preserve the peace. So this small indiscretion may preserve war. I want you to submit to a court outside of Nauvoo and we'll settle this down. And he promises if they give themselves up, he will protect them. He's a liar. So they're going to go to Carthage to submit, and Joseph is doubting the governor will keep his promise. He knows if he stays in Nauvoo, his critics will just be more angry. The mobs will um, come and attack the saints, and basically is like, well, we were thinking about you leaving the United States. Let's just leave now. So that night, after saying goodbye to his family, Joseph gets into a skiff with Hiram, Willard Richards, and Porter Rockwell, and they cross the Mississippi River. It's not a very good skiff, the boat's pretty leaky, so they they straight up have to bail water out of the bottom with their boots while um, Porter rows. It takes them hours to cross, basically, but they arrive over in the, the Iowa Territory, and Joseph asks Porter to go back to Nauvoo and bring back horses for them, and they're going to ride off into the sunset. Before um, Porter leaves, Joseph gives him a a letter to Emma, instructing her to sell the property if necessary, get support, and he's like, hey, we'll see each other again. Well, Emma is like, Joseph, come back. She doesn't want him to leave, so she sends her nephew, Lorenzo Wasson, to convince him to come back. So um, uh, Lorenzo and Porter arrive, And um, they tell Joseph the governor intends to occupy Nauvoo with his troops uh, until Joseph and Hiram give themselves up. Um, And then Emma, Porter brings a letter from Emma begging him to to return to the city. Joseph is still torn. uh, And then Lorenzo calls him a coward for leaving Nauvoo and exposing the saints to danger. Joseph, in a back to the future moment, says, I will die before I be called a coward. If my life is of no value to my friends, it is none to myself. Dude, what should I do? He asks Porter. Porter replies, You're the oldest. You ought to know best. Well, Joseph turns to his brother Hiram. You're the oldest. What should we do? Dude, this is a moment. I hate this moment. I want them to get on their horses and ride west. It is like when you are watching that movie and some dumb barefoot girls walking into a cornfield in a horror movie and you're like, what are you thinking? What? Stop. I just want to be like, get on the horse. Just go. But Hiram says, let us go back and give ourselves up and see the thing out. Joseph says, if you go back, I'll go back with you, but we shall be butchered. If we live or die, Hiram says, we'll be reconciled to our fate. Joseph considers it for a moment. Go, go, go. And then they get the boat and they go back. As they walk up the street towards the house, Emma sees them and her heart just sinks. She's almost like she has a premonition that she has called him back to his death. And she has. So Joseph um, stays with his family gathers his children together and blesses them the next morning he kisses each of them goodbye Emma Julia Murdoch who's 13 Joseph III who's 12 Frederick Frederick who's 8 Alexander who's 6 and Emma is currently pregnant with a baby that will never see his father named David Emma says you're coming back you're coming back it's almost like a mantra like she doesn't want it to believe it's true as Joseph rides away, he says, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter. In 135 verse 4, but I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward all men. I shall die innocent and it shall be said of me, he was murdered in cold blood. As they leave the city, Joseph um, turns around and he's like, this is the loveliest place and the best people under the heavens. Little do they know the trials that await them. That line, it just reminds me when Jesus is going to the cross and a great company of people follow him, bewailing him and lamenting him. And Jesus turns and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for your children. Oh, man. However, Joseph doesn't stay away for long. Three hours after leaving Nauvoo, he comes across the state militia that have orders to confiscate all the state-issued um, guns from the Nauvoo Legion. Joseph fears if they go in just demanding things that people will fight and it will, uh, uh, war will break out. So he goes back to kind of settle things down. Because it was such a long delay, they don't make it to Carthage till a little before midnight on June 24th. When they get there, everybody is still like... like It's kind of a riot atmosphere. People screaming out, where's the damn prophet? And shooting off their guns and whooping and hollering. The next morning, Joseph and his friends turn themselves into the constable. Um, and that day in court, they are released to await trial because the charges are just riot. They turn themselves in and they're good. But before they could leave town... Two of William Law's associates changed the charges from just a riot to treason because Joseph declared martial law and called out the Nauvoo Legion against them. Treason is this secret charge they bring against him. Same charge as Liberty Jail because it is a non-bailable offense. So they are able to hold him on these trumped up charges until they can take care of him. Now, um, the Carthage jail, they're locked in the cell in the basement with the bars and everything at night. Um, he has several friends that stay with him in Hiram. Uh, he writes a letter to Emma. He says, the governor has agreed to march his army to Nauvoo and I shall come along with him. Kind of this idea that the governor promises to protect him here. The next day, the kind jailer moves him out of the, the basement um, kind of jail cell up to... Uh, uh, the second floor, where there's just comfortable bedrooms, right? Now it's way comfortable. They can open the windows and let some of the, the summer air come in, but the one problem is that the door has a broken latch. It won't lock. They spend the day there. That evening, uh, Hiram reads aloud from the Book of Mormon and Joseph testifies of the Book of Mormon. I love how Elder Holland is like, dude, can you imagine if they made this up, them spending their last moments reading from and witnessing of the goodness of this? I don't see it, man. As the sun sets, you got Willard Richards, he's up writing at his desk, Joseph and Hiram take the bed, Stephen Markham and John Fulmer lay on another mattress on the floor, and then John Taylor and a new convert named Dan Jones uh, are sleeping on the floor. Sometime right around midnight they hear a gunshot and Joseph gets out of bed, looks out the window and then he gets on the floor and lays down next to Dan Jones and he says, Dan, are you afraid to die? And Dan in this thick Welsh accent says, Has that time come? Engaged in such a cause, I do not think that death would have many terrors. Ah! Joseph sits on that for a minute and then he whispers, You will see Wells, Dan, and fulfill a mission appointed you ere you die. On August 27th, just months after this prophecy, Dan Jones does leave for Wells. Under his direction, he establishes 29 branches of the church and baptizes nearly 1,000 people each year of his first mission. He's called on a second mission to Wells in 1852. And even though there's a a growing persecution against Latter-day Saints, he helps 2,000 people be baptized there. And, and basically, upon returning to Utah, helps to bring about 5,000 people to the, the western United States. After this prophecy, Dan drifts off to sleep. But around midnight, they, they hear the troops outside marching past. And they look out the window, and they, they it's the windows are open. They hear somebody say, how many will go in? So Dan wakes up the other prisoners, they they throw themselves against the door because remember, it won't lock. Somebody picks up a chair to use as a witness, a witness, <laughs> a weapon, <laughs> a weapon. They're gonna hit him with a chair, but it's just quiet. Finally, Joseph shouts, come on, we're ready for you. And they can hear their feet shuffling and they stay there until dawn, but then they retreat down the stairs and they don't go in. The next day, June 27th, Governor Ford marches the state militia into Nauvoo. But the governor doesn't take Joseph as he had promised. Instead, he disbands one militia unit that was in charge of guarding Joseph, leaving the prisoners more vulnerable. Um, Joseph sends a message to the Latter-day Saints. He says, There's no danger of any exterminating order like there was in Missouri, but be cautious. When Governor Ford gets to Nauvoo, he blames the Latter-day Saint for the crisis. He says, a great crime has been done and a severe atonement must be made. So prepare your minds for the emergency. He says, basically, the people of Nauvoo can be exterminated and the city burned to ashes. Depend upon it. A little bit more misbehavior from the citizens and the torch, which now is already lighted, will be applied. Did you get this? Like your own governor threatening to burn down your city and kill you all. Meanwhile, back at Carthage, um, they, they sit in the late afternoon and there's kind of a heavy foreboding spirit there. There's Joseph is there, Hiram, Willard Richards, and John Taylor. The rest of their friends have been sent on errands. Earlier during the day, visitors smuggle in two guns to the prisoners. How about that for prison security? A single, shooter, uh, single shot pistol and a six-shooter revolver. And the afternoon, John sings a, a, a British hymn. He'd recently returned from a mission to Britain and it come become popular with the Latter day Saints called A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief. Uh, really heavy for boating filling here. Uh, at four o'clock in the afternoon, there's a, a change of the guard and Joseph starts chatting with him. Around five o'clock, the jailer says, comes in and says, Hey, do you want to move down to the basement because it's more secure? Joseph thinks on it and says, "Hey, after after dinner we'll go down there." But they don't get a chance. A few minutes later, they hear rustling at the door and three or four gunshots. When they look out, instead of seeing guards, they see a hundred men with their face blackened with mud and gunpowder storming into the jail. Joseph grabs the six-shooter, Hiram grabs the single-shot pistol, John and Willard pick up canes and grips them like clubs, ready to fight them off, and they throw themselves against the door. Uh, Since the mob can't force the door, they start shooting through the door. Hiram leaned up against the door, a bullet goes straight through the door and right into his face, right next to his nose." Uh, as he stumbles back, another uh, bullet hits him in the lower back and he drops the pistol saying, I'm a dead man. Uh, and Joseph tries to shoot out the door, but it misfires, right? John uses his cane to beat down the gun barrels and then John runs to the window to try and climb out and jump from the second story window. As he runs to the window, he's shot in the leg. This trips him off balance, and he crashes against the thick windowsill, smashing his pocket, locking the time stamp in at 5.16 when this happens. He yells, I'm shot, and then Army crawls under the bed, but not before he's shot again in the hip. Basically, he's shot four times total, even though he's the smallest guy in the room. This leaves Joseph and Willard just pushing against the door with all their weight. Suddenly, Joseph just drops the revolver and runs for the window himself. He gets to the window, straddles it to jump out, and then he's shot in the back twice from the hall and another time from down below, right below the heart. He cries out, Oh Lord, my God, and falls headfirst out the window. Willard, even though bullets are flying everywhere, runs out to the window to see Joseph as bullets are flying by him. He sees the mob swarming around Joseph's bleeding body, and he's like, come on, get up, move, move, be alive. But he doesn't move. He's dead. Somebody cries out, the Mormons are coming, and the mob scatters. Willard goes to move out, and he hears John John say from under the bed, help me. So he grabs John, and they go back to see Joseph. Uh, as John's recovering from his bullet wounds, he writes section 135 to commemorate Joseph Smith. And he says, to seal the testimony of this book, and meaning the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Book of Mormon, we announce the martyrdom of Joseph Smith the prophet and Hiram Smith the patriarch. Um, basically, to me, that they s- Their lives are reminiscent uh, of of Abinadi here, giving his witness and then refusing to recant under pressure. He he says it in verse 3. Joseph Smith, the, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more, save Jesus only, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. In the short space of 20 years, he has brought forth the Book of Mormon, which he translated by the gift and power of God. He has been the means of publishing it on two continents. He sent forth the fullness of the everlasting gospel, which contained to the four quarters of the earth. He has brought forth the revelations and commandments, which composed this book of Doctrine and Covenants and many other wise documents and instructions for the benefit of the children of men, gathered many thousands of Latter-day Saints, founded a great city, and left a fame and a name that cannot be slain. Dude. You're almost to the end of the Doctrine and Covenants. You've spent some time with these revelations, with these truths, with these history. Tell me, what have you learned about Heavenly Father because of Joseph Smith? What have you learned about the nature of Jesus Christ? What have you learned about our potential, what we can become and become? the nature of this world. I want to just tell you, I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. I also know he's an imperfect, real human being. And that's just about the most hopeful thing I can imagine. It shows me that the living son of God works with imperfect people like me. It is a hopeful message of Christ's grace, redemption, and goodness. Uh, I love the Book of Mormon and its witness of Jesus Christ. And I am deeply grateful for the doctrines revealed in the Doctrine and Covenants and in Joseph's Nauvoo ministry. I think it's just about the most exciting thing ever to be with my wife forever and to be with my children forever. I am grateful for the message of the Book of Mormon and its redemption redemptive power of Jesus Christ. Take some time today and just think about it for yourself. How has the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ through Joseph Smith blessed your life? In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.